Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 20. We've got a really great guest this week. I am stoked to bring you that interview in a few minutes. But before we do that, I wanted to have a bit of a follow-up to my rant from episode 17, where we discussed time management and how what you say yes to affects what you say no to. And I don't want to go through that again. I instead want to just talk about how time occurs to you. I was watching some productivity videos, as I do for entertainment, and there was one by Ali Abdal that inspired me for today's topic. I think it was from his Skillshare class. For anybody unfamiliar with his videos, I highly recommend them. I'll drop some links in the show notes. So I won't regurgitate the information from his video. I mean, he's a doctor and he's smart as hell, so I won't pretend that I can do his concept justice. Instead, I'll just say that his video is about the phrase, I don't have time, and that you should check it out. Now, the statement, I don't have time, is completely created by how your situation occurs to you. We've discussed before how it's important to understand how you view something or how it occurs to you. Remember, your mind will trick you into staying satisfied. So if you really believe you have no time, it will be sure to remind you of that in one way or another. This plays right into our chat from episode 17 about your yes and your no. You are choosing how you spend your time. So that means that you are the one that is leaving yourself no time for something. Generally, in my experience, the thing that you don't have time for is probably the thing you would really most like to be doing. But your fear of the unknown will keep you from actively pursuing it. And your mind doesn't want you to think you're a quitter or that you're not a go-getter. Nah, that would be horrible for your mental state. So instead, you'll find something else that feels more important. And you'll choose to do that instead and claim that you don't have time for your someday maybe goals. Okay, let's bring Parkinson's law into this, because you know I like to drag some science into these rants. Parkinson's law states that the work expands so as to fill the time available for its completion. So let's relate that back to how you are spending your time and your claims that you don't have enough of it. If you decide you're going to finish your album this year, it will take you all year, and you'll finish it in December. If you book a six-hour block of studio time to record one vocal, it'll take six hours. I should know. I've engineered sessions and scratched my head trying to figure out how we could possibly still be working. If you have two days to deliver a pitch on a project, you'll send it at the end of day two. And if you have three hours to write a song with the artist in the room, you'll get it done in three hours. To a certain extent, Parkinson's Law basically describes why procrastination exists. Why do you cram for an exam? Why do you stay up all night finishing a mix the day before the mastering deadline? 
it takes a level of discipline that unfortunately most humans lack to not use the allotted time for a task or project. You will inherently work at a slower pace if you don't have the pressure of deadlines. But Parkinson's law doesn't always have to work against us. You could be using it to your advantage. Try setting some strict and hard deadlines for yourself. You'll find that if you understand how long a task should take you by tracking your time, and you're willing to enforce a strict deadline to your work, then you can complete a lot of work in very little time. And by doing so, you'll be creating time. Time that you can use for whatever you want. Family, friends, goals, golf, whatever. So you still say that you don't have time for your dreams or goals? If that's the case, I can guarantee that Parkinson's Law will be sure of it. If the work expands to fill the time available for its completion, and you've allotted an infinite amount of time, well, I don't think you need a calculator to figure that one out. Today's guest is Grammy Award-winning engineer, mixer, producer, and songwriter Ian Dowling. Ian is based out of the UK and has worked on an uncountable number of gold and platinum records for artists such as Adele, Kasabian, KT Tunstall, and Catfish and the Bottleman. He does compositional work for various television and radio clients and runs not one, but two of his own record labels, At Swim Music and Punch Up Records. He also has a podcast, and he mentors young engineers and producers. Honestly, I have no clue how he's even got time to hang out with us. So welcome to the show, Ian Dowling. What's up, Ian? Hey, man. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking out my studio window now. It's, it's been snowing here the past couple of days. Um, so it's better than rain. Very much so. Yeah, we've had quite a lot of rain, and uh, it's the first time my daughter's kind of seen snow here. So uh, we've been, you know, throwing snowballs. At, well, mainly her throwing snowballs at me um, <laughs> and pulling pulling her around the streets on a on a sled. That, but, that's yeah, cool. no, it's, it's good. Your, your studio has a window. That's such a rarity. Well, it's it's got a whole. The whole door is a window. So it's uh, yeah. I, I, when I built it. I thought because it's a pretty small space, it's like four by four meters. It was going to be the only place where light was going to come in, and uh, to not have light would be, uh, yeah, would would be rubbish. Um, so, so yeah, I had a big old door put in. Nice, yeah. nice. So you've got uh, you've got releases coming out with your labels. Uh, it's this week for us, but it'll be it'll be last week for our listeners when they're uh, when they're hearing this episode. Right. Yeah. On, on the twelfth. Yeah. So on at Swim Music, we signed a song from an artist called Unom JG, and the song's called Last Tuesday's Warp, and he's a a kind of activist and poet in um, Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and the genesis of the song is uh, it's a medita a poem that he started a meditation on water. Okay. And so you've kind of got that almost like kind of a mantra going over the top and this really kind of soothing, cool, musical backdrop. It's very soothing. Uh, I'd, I'd say quasi-meditational, if you're that way inclined. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's coming out. And on, uh, on Punch Up Records, uh, we've got an EP coming out by an artist called Adam Ubku, who's, uh, I think he's in his 20s. He's from uh, Piedmont in, uh, no, Piedmont, sorry, in Italy which is near Turin. We've, we found him via Submit Hub. Uh, do you know about Submit Hub? A little bit. I'm not totally familiar. Uh, it's, it's a really good platform, um, certainly for us, the size we are. We're basically an independent little label. And 
it allows artists to submit to playlist curators, record labels, all that kind of stuff. And from our end, we can filter out what kind of things we want to be sent and all that sort of stuff. So we've uh, we signed most of our artists through there. Cool. But Adam was a bit of a weird one because uh, he sent us a song that was his submission, which we approved and said, oh, let's get in touch. And then we didn't hear from him for like two weeks. So we found him on SoundCloud and found this EP on SoundCloud and sent him a message on there and didn't hear back from him. Um, and then I found his Facebook. <laughs> this is how much we really wanted to put this EP out. Um, I found his Facebook and messaged him on there. And then eventually, about a month later, he got back to us. Um, and, and that's kind of been, he's a, a very enigmatic man, put okay. it that way. Uh, I've never spoken to him face to face or video to video. Uh, I don't even know what he sounds like. Uh, I, I, I think I know what he looks like because he sent a picture, but it might not even be him. Uh, yeah, so we just kind of uh, communicate over WhatsApp when he's got a question, if I, if I need anything from him. He's, he's pretty low maintenance as an artist, I have to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yeah, but yeah, amazing. he's he's very much of the, um, he, it's techno, minimal techno. He's very much of the kind of dub fire, Richie Horton, that kind of stripped back techno that has, because it's so stripped back, a lot of people who do it, uh, Adam included, kind of have a lot of loops going in the background and then they'll sort of make the arrangement by mixing them with faders up and, you know, throwing into reverbs and things like that. So okay. even though it's, you know, they're just repetitious loops, the performance aspect kind of gets the balance between man and machine that's really cool. nicely. So that's going to be out. It's going to be exclusive on Beatport from the 12th and then it's released everywhere else on the 26th of January. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you've been uh, you've been an engineer and producer for decades. What made you want to get into the label thing and start signing artists and releasing music? Well, it's 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 a sort of extended story, really. I mean, I think about two three years ago, I kind of I kind of burnt out. Basically, I'd been engineering, producing, mixing for uh, as you say uh, quite a while, and. It was a combination of a lot of things. Um, I, we moved out of London down here. I, I live in Whitstable on the coast in Kent. Uh, and I built this studio uh, and we had our first child, well, our first and so far only child. And all of those things, the moving and the new parenting and all that sort of stuff are quite isolating in a lot of ways. Plus then doing most of your work in the same room and only communicating with people via email pre-COVID, you know, yep. nobody Zoomed back then. It, it was pretty isolating. And uh, I realised that what I missed a lot about working on sessions uh, was the interaction with other people. Yeah. Both creatively and socially. So I, I kind of hit a bit of a dark place, really, and I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. You know, there were there was kind of a few days in a row where I'd come down to, this, you know, walk the length of my garden, my short commute to my studio, and come in and sit down, I kind of, and the music I was working on was great, but I sort of sit down and I just kind of went, uh, do you know what I mean? Like that yeah. kind of, here we go again, Groundhog Day. Basically the last thing I ever wanted from this job, the reason I do this is to avoid like the plague ever having to have a proper job, or, right. you know, inverted commas, proper job. So that hit me quite hard because I was like, oh my God, if I don't enjoy this, <laughs> Uh, I've kind of painted myself into a corner in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah, so that was the genesis of basically going, right, what do I want to do? And at the time, I was kind of thinking, 
I wasn't going to produce or mix anymore. I, I was kind of looking for like a whole new direction. So I, I, hence I tried the podcast. I did six, six episodes of that, Freudian slip. I did six episodes of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, not sex. I did six episodes of that. And then uh, that took a while to put out because I had a lot of, what's the word? I've been fear, I suppose. I mean, I, I've always been part of the backroom staff, yeah. you know, but, but like many of the backroom staff, I harboured sort of secret ideas of being front and centre in some way. That's what we do, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah we, we sort of live uh, via reflected glory until you kind of want to step out there a bit. And, and it's not necessarily that I wanted, you know, to be, I don't know, not, not to be famous or renowned or anything like that, but, but it was kind of a hump I needed to get over in terms of putting things out there with my name on and with my face on and getting over my own internal struggle with that, the fear of it, the catastrophizing, oh, everyone's going to hate it. Everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. Everyone's going to, do you know, all of which is completely untrue. Like all yeah. of my friends and family and everybody have been nothing but supportive. And right. any comments I've had about the podcast or whatever else I'm doing have all been supportive. It's the artist's I, curse. I, I, well, well I, I guess so, yeah. yeah. I, and, and the isolated artist's curse, in a way. Yeah. On the one hand, I was and am really happy I've got this studio because I don't think if I couldn't have had a, a sort of isolated space in which to explore all these ideas on my own, not in front of anybody else, I probably wouldn't have got there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But once I had ideas, it, the, the podcast was the first thing I was like, right, I've got to put this out. Like whatever happens, even if I think it's not that great, even if I, I could sit there and tweak the mix of it for ages. Do you know what I mean? You just kind of put obstacles in your way. Yeah. Oh, I haven't got the artwork right. Oh, I haven't got all the, all these little details that don't really matter <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, I kind of missed my personal deadline to put it out by about nine months. And at, by the end of it, I was just like, fuck it. I don't care. <laughs> I, I, every time I open it on my hard drive, it's like a reminder of something, you know what I mean, that I've failed to do or have been too scared to do. So I just put it out and I got a, a friend to uh, basically do it for me, uh, to <laughs> distribute it on Spotify and all the different places. And, right. and, and that was really like a kind of, um, once that was out, I felt I'd, I'd kind of broken the seal, if you like. And I was like, okay, I didn't die. Nothing happened. People have been nice. I can now go ahead and just crack on and do whatever I want to do without worrying about what other people think. Yeah. Which is, you know, where my mind was for all of my life up until three years ago. I mean, I should say it did coincide pretty much with me turning 40. And I, I don't think that is unconnected. Um, <laughs> either the sort of, you know, career... Uh, worries and also just kind of throwing your hands in the air and go, fuck it, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's why they say life begins at 40, I think. I think I think your life where you don't give a fuck begins at 40. You're right, uh, yeah. And that's the what, that's what you need to kind of like to get past all the nonsense sometimes. It's once you, once you put something out and you realize that everything was okay and nothing exploded, then it makes everything that comes after that just so much easier. So yeah, you got, you got to have your don't totally. give a fuck attitude. Totally. And after that, my friend and I, my friend Ed Kenny, 
my very good friend. We had been hanging out for a while and we'd been, he turned me on to techno big time. And we started DJing that in like local, um, local record stores and in the studio here and started making a bit of techno. And then we thought, well, why not just start a label as a, you know, since we're doing stuff, since I'm doing stuff and why shouldn't we? we? We just started this record label and then started a dance label. Yeah, I, I've really abridged that story. But um, yeah, <laughs> the past kind of four years, I've, I've really, I've just allowed myself to do whatever I feel like I should do. It's yeah. kind of the, the sum up, you know, without putting obstacles in my way and, and just, you know, cracking on and not caring what other people say. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, you, you have to feel like a weight lifted when you just start doing that. All those things you you threatened to do for like 10 years become so uh, so so easy. And, and it's like empowering, like once something happens, because I have similar feelings about this podcast. You know, it's like I mm. getting the first one out there was like frightening. And, you know, I, I must have done like three edits on it. And I would I would mix it and then go for a walk and like listen to like every other podcast that I listen to and see what the scent, what it sounds like and jump back and forth between my Dropbox and Spotify or whatever and come back and like, you know, change the vocal and change it. And finally I was like, I, this episode's done. The first episode's done. And then ever since the first episode, you know, the, the mixes and the edits are taken a quarter of the time. But yeah, yeah. That, that first, that first time, that first record podcast book, whatever it is, uh, that's the, the big one you got to jump over. It really is. And I think, I kind of think you, you, if you haven't done it before, I suppose I, I think this because that's how I did it. But um, for our artists who haven't put anything out before, uh, obviously we've signed them on the strength of their song. We think the song's great. But we kind of say to them, get this first one out. You probably won't love it. It'll feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and there'll be things you want to change about it after the fact but it's worth just getting something out and then what once you've got something on the board you're like right i'm going to do better than that next time okay and then the third one you do better than that and then the fourth one you do better than that but until you put that first one out it's always hanging there and, and you're never gonna progress basically you just you can't oh yeah yeah you have to uh the only way to learn and grow is to put it out there and eventually you know you'll look back at it and see that yeah, it wasn't perfect, but you know, it it made you your first thousand fans, or you know, it was your your first big change or whatever. But so, uh, yeah, uh, as like as mixers and producers, like we've spent so much time on projects that we've we've probably both had that feeling of like you finish something and then you don't you feel like you don't want to hear it when it comes out. You don't want to listen to it because you you know oh, where all wow. the bodies are buried. You're like, ah, totally. I really wanted to like, I wanted that vocal to be louder, but the producer didn't or the band wanted this. And I, I, I still have it. I yeah. still have it with stuff I've worked on like 10 years ago. Oh, you still like, can't if, go if back. I hear it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I can't, I've worked out, it, there's about a two year, I wouldn't ever put anything on, you know, that really that I've worked on. Yeah, uh, I mean, why? you've heard it you know so many times. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But if, if I'm out and it's, you know, it's something that's been on the radio or it comes on, I'm like, oh, I recognise this. What's this? And then, they, oh, yeah, no, that's the thing I, I did. And then you're like, oh, it sounds pretty good in this environment. But, but yeah, there's still all those things that you're, the thing that you struggled with, you know, whatever it was, the, yeah. the vocal sound or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's hard to. 
Yeah, we've kind of experienced what those, you know, those new artists are experiencing in that, mm. you know, eventually they'll be able to look back and, and be, you know, happy with everything they've done or know that they grew from it. But well, eventually they'll look back and, and the first thing they did will be the thing they like the most, most probably. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the first mix I ever did that got on the radio or anything, um, at the time I was like, oh my God, it's so embarrassing. But I look back at it now and it's like, do you know what? I, I, I think it's probably the best thing I've done. <laughs> Just because it's one of those, you can hear that I'm not thinking about it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no I'm expectations. just sort of reacting and, to it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's uh, that's amazing. Well, let's talk a little bit about your your past engineering and producing. Or actually, let's go back. How'd you get into music? Were you a player when you were a kid? Were you just a music fan? How did it all start? Um, well, I was a music fan up until uh i was gonna say only a music fan up until the age of about 13 so your classic sort of time really um i my parents were into music but it wasn't like you know on all the time in the house um but but i remember there was a, a they probably weren't all together but in my mind they are but between the ages of kind of six and nine there were three periods where I had not like terrible, terrible illnesses, but had to be off school for a couple of weeks, mumps mm. and all that sort of stuff. And while I was uh, in bed under orders from mum, I just had this little cassette player, just like one of those short little small ones that, uh, you know, you can record on and stuff. And um, I just went through my mum's cassette collection. So there's a lot of Pet Shop Boys, uh, Erasure, there's another one. So it's pretty kind of flamboyant pop <laughs> was the uh, was the order of the day. And then um, my dad was a big Led Zepp fan. So uh, I, I got into his cassettes of Led Zepp and stuff like that. And my uncle, uh, Richard, he actually works as an engineer on adverts and things like that. So he had a small recording setup at his house is basically a reel-to-reel machine oh, cool. and a, you know, a, a reverb and blah, blah, blah. And I, I don't know if I still have it now, but there, there's a, a cassette of me at five years old, kind of singing like a happy Christmas sort of thing recorded on his reel-to-reel. -reel. And, and I, I don't know. You put that on your it's label. It's very hard to pinpoint. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have it anymore. I don't know. I, I think, I think it's one of those, I think my brother might have recorded over it. You know, it might be one of those things. Uh, I didn't break the tab off. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's hard to pinpoint the exact thing. It'd be very easy in a narrative sense to go, and that's when I decided I was going to be a recording engineer. Uh, but I don't really think that's true. And then I, start, I started playing drums in at secondary school when I was about 13 and was in a succession of uh, kind of punk and, and grunge-inspired bands of high-energy but low-quality um, that never kind of really went anywhere. When was it I sort of decided? I mean, I, I was never, I, I wasn't ever really 
a stage performer. We did a few gigs, you know, in front of the school, in front of college, a few pubs and stuff. And I just really didn't like it. I couldn't relax and I couldn't, you know, take myself out of my own head. Uh, and oh, yeah. uh, you know, my, my playing suffered and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, gradually over time, I realised I wasn't going to be, um, you know, the session drummer or big band drummer that uh, that I thought I was going to be. And it coincided with, uh, I'd, I'd been into uh, Nirvana and grunge, and been through, through the whole rock thing. And then I really started getting into Prodigy and, and dance music and getting into samplers and drum machines. Cool. And I really, I much preferred that kind of twiddling with knobs uh, in a room on your own, as opposed to playing in front of a load of people. So that started me off, you know, working with equipment. And then the college I was at at the time, they built a small studio, like a small reel-to-reel studio. And that, that was my first taste of recording stuff. Nice. Uh, that's when I decided, ah, right, if I can't be... Uh, you know, the next Buddy Rich, I'll be the next George Martin instead, even though I've never really been a massive fan of the Beatles. But uh, yeah. I was kind of similar. I was a guitar player and uh, in high school, I recorded myself and then I played it back and then listened to it and mm. thought, mm, no, uh -huh. no, I can't record myself. <laughs> and then went, went back to school and I was like, found, found my friend. I was like, hey, you play guitar and sing. You want me to record you? Because I can't listen to myself. And then, uh, yeah, then you just go down the rabbit hole. So, uh, well, I, th I think that's that's the big. You know, I wonder if someone else had recorded you, and then sort of polished it up a bit, and then sent it to you. Whether you would have a different view on that? I, I think there is definitely a. It's it's kind of the thing about hearing your own voice. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And and if if I'm dropping myself in on a performance here that is a lot harder than if I sit in the other chair over there and I've got an engineer here and they're dropping me in. Yeah, and they and tell you that there's... was good. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about the the fact that you're not in charge of that. You can focus on the performance, which is, you know, the value of having a an engineer as well as having someone who's technically very proficient for any band. Or any, I know the, you know, it's very easy for a band to record themselves in practical terms. Right. But I, I don't always think it's the best thing in sort of psychological terms for them to do that. They always get stuck down the rabbit hole of fixing performances that don't need fixing. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. You need that kind of one objective brain in the room, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so many people, everybody in every industry, but musicians and artists in particular, they're always like the, the idea of perfection and perfectionism is just really just holding them back. And that's where, yeah, the producer mm. objective ear of like, no, that's great. That's got a feeling. Yeah. Needs, needs to outweigh somebody else's opinion on whether it was technically perfect in their mind. So, yeah, it's somebody, even if it's somebody in the band, somebody has to be objective somehow or else nobody's going to finish anything. So, exactly. It's usually the drummer or the bass player because they're done, they're, they're done the quickest. <laughs> <laughs> they spend the most time sitting in the back of the room. Like, exactly. oh, God, this has yeah. to be good enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's right. And I think that that's a very, that the idea of the the perfection, I mean, I, I guess as a songwriter or, or a performer, the piece of art isn't finished until someone has received it, right? It, yeah. It's and, and reacted to it. Yeah. Whether you're there or not, 
while it happens. But ideally, you are there, as uncomfortable as it might be. Um, <laughs> it's it's the thing of hearing something through somebody else's ears, and especially if you've written the song and you've been playing on the song, and you're you've been the one to record the song and then mix the song. I mean, you know, to to get any to know what's good in it or not. I, I mean, I find that I, I find I, I don't really. It's helpful to me to when I'm making something. It, it's kind. It's not up to me whether someone thinks it's good or not. Do you yeah. know what I mean? No, totally. It, it's. It, it's. I, I can't think about that while I'm making something. Um, I, I just. I follow my kind of artistic muse or whatever you want to say, and whatever bubbles up in my head. I try all the ideas out, and then it only becomes real and I can only listen to it in a different way once I've played it to someone else even if that's my wife or Ed or you know whoever yeah it, it gives you a different perspective um, oh totally I think what you said was art doesn't happen until somebody hears it and that's yeah. a really like a really fascinating sentence because it's really true you know it's like if you create something and you keep it just for yourself and no one knows it exists and you obsess over it it doesn't exist. And it's like when a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there, it doesn't make a sound. Totally. Totally. <laughs> so, well, well it's, not, it's not even art, is it? It, it's, it only becomes art once it has a kind of a, a socio-cultural context of, of, of any kind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just an object or a product. Yeah. If you make something and then you put it up on Bandcamp or whatever for sale you haven't made a piece of art. There, there is not a piece of art for sale. It's, it's just a product for sale. If you've played it to a few people and they've said they liked it and then you put it on sale, then I feel like you can kind of say, well, that's, it might not be a very popular piece of art. <laughs> sure, <laughs> maybe only four people like it, but at least it kind of qualifies as art as opposed to, you know, a, 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 just a direct sell product that you're putting out. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I I love that that sentence. I wrote that down. I'm gonna remind people of that when they don't want to release music or play their idea for somebody else. Just remember that it's not real until somebody else hears it. Well, exactly, and and I think um, this is a slight tangent, I suppose. But through doing this, uh, through doing these labels, it's given me. I mean, part of the reason I wanted to do it is uh, so that I had an appreciation of. Uh, I've only had, you know, I've only ever seen firsthand the process from going into the studio occasionally you know writing and what have you but let's sort of keep it simple when somebody hires me to record them or mix them or whatever i see them when they step in the studio and then you know when it gets sent to mastering and most of the time i might hear back you know the, the master and then that's it I, I don't know what happens after that right and, and that is you know that is probably that's i was going to say 20 percent of the process but maybe less of the moment of creation, writing a song, all the way to it's in the stores and, you know, you've done some press shots and you're promoting it and stuff. Yeah. That is a very small part of the process. And it's very easy for for us as producers or, you know, musicians or whoever to only focus on that part of the process and then to kind of other, the, the, the other people who are completely integral to the rest of it. So if you've got a label, your A&R person, the person, your marketing person, the PR person, that there are so many spokes in the wheel that gets something from a moment of creation into something that is available to the world. Yeah. It helped me actually 
not obsess so much over my part of the process, really, because you, you can, I, I've worked on things that I've completely obsessed over and got them to where I think they're sounding absolutely wonderful. And then further down the chain, something's gone wrong. Maybe the A&R guy, their A&R guy left the label and it wasn't given a push or it wasn't marketed in the right way or they didn't get that tour they wanted. Or, and, yeah. and you kind of realise how little control you as a, a an engineer or a producer have over whether something's successful or not. Yeah. Right? There's, there's loads of things we've all worked on that we thought were great that have either never seen the light of day or have come out and just kind of sunk like a stone. And, and you know, that that's months of work. And you're like, oh, my God. You know, it, it's and equally, there are things that I've done in half a day or a day that I would have liked more time on that have been put out and have done really rather well. And you're like, well, I don't actually, you know, obviously I want to do a great job, but I am not the the deciding factor here. And I don't need to keep putting pressure on myself. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I was very good at that. I was very good at um, just heaping pressure on myself. And it was like, <laughs> if, I, if I don't get this right, the whole record's ruined or the whole, you know, my career's ruined and they're not going to hire me again. And this label's not going to hire. Do you know what I mean? I was so good at that. Yeah, yeah. And to be sort of more generous to myself or more positive, it probably <laughs> pushed me to do things, achieve things that I may not have achieved otherwise. But it certainly crossed into, um, you know, not being psychologically very healthy for no. for a period. There's like a, there's an obsessiveness that's like inherent with the creation of a record from like the engineering and, and the production and the mixing where you can just go in circles and circles and mute that. Oh, well, let's, let's play that differently. Let's try a different keyboard sound. Okay, do you have that thing from three days ago? That was better than the thing we did now. And you can just go and go <laughs> yeah. and go. And yeah, you can get lost in there. And I find that, in the last couple of years, I've started to worry less about and trying as hard as I can to eliminate what I think about something from mm. like a like a mix. And it's always, what is the artist? What do I think they want? What are they telling me that they want? What is what I'm doing say about the song? Is it does this promote the lyric? it takes some of that pressure away when you are willing to just let it be all about somebody else. And I think eventually mm. you have to reach a point in your career where you know all the tricks. And then at that point, you don't want to like use them all anymore. You just want to yeah. do whatever somebody else, you know, wants to do and, and that's better. But, but yeah, you can get lost in a record for, oh man, for so yeah, long. Well, I, I think any, anybody, anybody as part of the process can. And, and I think the, where that comes from is, um, it is always, even if you've written the song, it is always healthier to remove yourself from the process. You know the idea of the the muse, the artistic muse. Yeah. And you probably had this as well, and, and I'm sure anybody listening who's ever written anything or played something, sometimes when you're kind of in a flow state, it seems like you're not really doing anything. The music is asking you for something, and you just fulfill that request. Yeah. When, when I've been on in that frame of mind is when I think I've, I've done my best work. Maybe on an objective level, they might not be the best sounding records. They might not be the most hi-fi records. I'm sure there's other things that could have been done differently. Right. However, everything sounds right with the song. There's no dissonance, either, you know, psychological dissonance or anything like that. Yeah. And... and all along the chain, you know, if you 
I mean, we've all done mixes or what productions, whatever before that we think are amazing <laughs> to, to, to overblow it a bit, but we think are really good. And you send it to a band member or to the label and they're like, Oh no, this, this really isn't it. This yeah. is completely not it. And you're like, Oh man, I've totally missed it. But how can they not like it? The kick's booming and the, the snare's snapping. The vocal sounds, you know, epic and beautiful. How can they not like it? And that's because you've kind of, you haven't listened to what the, the song is asking you to do. You've listened to what your ego is, you know, asking you to do. Yeah. Um, and, and they're very easily, I found them very easily confused. Yeah. The results are always better when I get myself into a state of mind where I'm, I'm kind of, ready to hear what the music is asking me for yeah and that might be not listening to it for a day and being all right with that uh, do you know what i mean like mm -hmm. there's a deadline it's got to be finished in a week uh there's seven tracks to do and the deadline's six days away let's say and you know there's a bit of pressure there if, if you go by the usual track a day sort of metric and in years gone by i would have you know started at eight o'clock on the on the you know, on the first day, work 16 hours, work 16 hours the next day, 16 hours the day after that. I've got to work. The harder I work, the more likely it is I'm going to get it finished and it's going to be good. And it, it's just not true. <laughs> Often the best thing to do, if you don't, if you don't know what to do, don't do anything. It's kind of like the Miles Davis thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it is like, you know, it's, it's all about the spaces in between the notes. If, if you don't know what to play, if you haven't got an idea of what to play, Don't do play. not play a thing. Yeah. Because it's probably better that way. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, and uh, you have to keep your ego in check. And, mm. you know, going back to what you were saying, it's like, it's a weird thing to say or to grasp onto, but vibe is real. Like when everybody in the room is like feeling something, whether it's yeah. the most hi-fi or the most perfectly executed performance, it doesn't matter everybody loves it. Like if 10 people are like, this is the dopest thing we've done today, then you stop there. <laughs> you know, like don't worry yeah, about totally. how in tune it is or whatever it is. Like vibe is real. It translates totally. to the listener. Exactly. Well, well, yeah, it's the first um, kind of, it's the first kind of uh, focus group, isn't it? If you're in the studio with, with a band and you're all loving it, yeah. you may well come in the next morning and go, okay, this needs a bit of tidying up or whatever. But vibe is not, um, is there another word for vibe? I kind of feel like vibes, kind of old it's, school. Uh, yeah, Easy. I don't. I don't know. No, it's just vibe, isn't it? Vibration. I mean, it's li music is literally air vibration. So vibe is the right word. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, I say authenticity right. a lot, but I don't know if that totally applies. But I mean, a performance has to be authentic, yeah. and authentic might not be, you know, it might not be perfect. The sad piano ballad. Yeah, you be have perfect. to believe it, don't you? Yeah, whatever that, it is, you have thing. to believe it. So whether yeah. you call it vibe or mojo, whatever whatever word you want to slap in there, yeah, is is the way to go. So when did you start working at Strong Room? I'm, I'm having a great time. We'll track we'll we'll track through some uh, some career moments to make it feel like we uh, okay. We went, we went through the directions here. here. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Travis. Because yeah. otherwise, I'm just going to ramble on about random shit. Yeah. For so 35 an seconds, and then we'll we'll ramble a different a different place. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you started at Strong Room, and you worked there for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Eight, eight years. So I started there at 2001 and it was, you know, I, I, after uni, I sent out like 200 CVs to studios around London and then didn't get anything back. 
and travelled around Europe for a couple of months and came back and did the same thing. And I got two replies, one from Strong Room and one from a, a studio called Britannia Row in, um, in Fulham. And uh, I, I got both the jobs. I went for the interview and got both the jobs, but I decided Strong Room because it was a lot more of the artists that I were, was loving at the time had worked there or were working there. So yeah. Prodigy, Chemical Brothers, you know, th th there was so much stuff going on there at the time. And I started there as a, as a runner on like, I don't know, £9,000 a year or something crazy, <laughs> right. which at the time was enough to have a bed sit, you know, just down from the local crack house in Dalston. <laughs> and, you know, that, which was a, a bus ride away from the studio. So it was all very exciting. Right. And yeah, so I worked my way up from runner to assistant engineer in a year and a half or so. And then was an assistant engineer for maybe four or five years after that and then became the in-house engineer. So I was there for about eight years in total. Cool. And yeah, that, then I met Jim Abbas on a session there and he happened to be looking for a, a an engineer to work with long term. And yeah, we hit it off and, and, and that's that's what sprung me out of uh, Strong Room. To but be honest, I, I, it was, I was really close. I was really close to going, this isn't going to happen. I, I was really at the end of my tether with everything. Yeah. I mean, that that's usually when shit happens, right? I oh, suppose, yeah, for sure. Going back to my story to begin with, three years ago when I was at the end of my tether with, you know, the stuff I was doing, that now you look back at it and go, oh, great, that was the perfect turning point. At the time, it's really uncomfortable and horrible. But generally, if you're feeling pretty uncomfortable about something, it means it's either time to change or something is about to change or there's oh, yeah. new horizons coming. Yeah. With, I, so I guess if you were at the end of your tether, then uh, jumping to go freelance and going to work for Jim was a pretty easy decision then. You, oh, you weren't sweating man, that I one. Was, I was so ready. Okay. I, I was more than ready. I, I'm very, very fucking lucky. It was Jim who offered. I mean, it could have been someone completely, because the sort of music we liked uh, was, we were basically very much simpatico with each other. Mm, you know, yeah. I, I really respected him for the work, records he's, he'd worked on. We had similar kind of musical tastes and likes. I think he liked the fact that um, I was I was fine about taking the piss out of him and and you know not being too reverential. And that I was uh, <laughs> in in retrospect, I could sort of, I was like, yeah, I'll probably be doing this, and then I'll probably just start producing records in a year and a half or so or something like that. And Jim was like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the kind of um, ignorance of youth. Uh, yeah, totally. You know. Yeah, we really got on and we, and we worked together for, God, uh, probably eight years or so after that and, and all the kind of high points um, in awesome. terms of the Grammy and all that kind of stuff uh, came while I was working with Jim. That was uh, Adele 21? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. We did two songs on that. I mean, oh, that cool. was one of those ones. We did those two songs in the in between, in the middle of doing another album basically. So we were two weeks before, I can't remember which one we were doing. No, it's gone. Uh, <laughs> but, but we would, we were, we'd done two weeks tracking on an album and then there was a week break and we had this three day session with Adele. And then the next week we were back in the studio with the other band, you know, to do two or three more weeks finishing off this other record. So it, it in terms of return for hours put in, <laughs> it, it, it was pretty crazy. Jim had hired, um, Neil Cowley, who is an amazing piano player, who's a jazz piano player, who he'd worked with before. And 
he came in and Adele just showed him the chords and then he reinverted them and they just tracked it and and rehearsed it for a little bit. And then uh, that was the first day. And then the second day, we actually recorded three songs, but two made it onto the record. The second day, we did all the piano and the vocals, which basically took the first half of the day yeah. for three songs. She did three takes on each, all of which, and as did Neil, all of which were wonderful. Like Amazing. every single bit of every one was wonderful. No drop-ins or anything. And uh, and then we edited those together. And then the last day, we had like a 30-piece orchestra to go on top of two of them. And then I mixed it in the last six hours or five hours of the last day. <laughs> and uh, and then went home a bit tired. And then, you know, went back to doing the other album uh, the following week and didn't really think too much of it because at the time, I mean, she was, she was pretty, she was known and Jim had done most of her first record with her, him and Paul Etworth. And, and, but th there was no indication that, um, this, that, that the record we were working on was going to be as big yeah, as it was. That it, record it was, was utterly insane. was huge. Yeah. That was the, the one. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's awesome. That's a good story. I'm glad it was, uh, it was like a week or a week or two. It's, it's funny how, the, how those things pan out. Yeah, well, yeah, and the whole session from recording to mix was three days. I might have done a little tweak on something back home. I don't think I did, actually. I, I think that were, that there wasn't time. Was it close to um, release, or that's just all the time you guys had in the schedule? Both. But, okay. So, yes, it was close to release. She'd basically done a whole record's worth of recording with Rick Rubin in LA. She'd mm. been out there for a few months, and she'd wanted it to be a kind of Carol King sort of thing. So they'd got, it was all live takes. They got Pino Palladino on the bass. They got these amazing musicians right. doing live takes. And she kind of got to the end of that process, which I think was on a personal level. She was kind of out there on her own and, you know, she felt a bit lonely and isolated and all that kind of stuff. She didn't have a, not, not because of Rick or anything like that, but she, it wasn't like a very satisfying experience. Right. And also I think she didn't want to age herself too much by going full tapestry you know so she came back to london did a couple more songs with paul epworth and then mm. she had these two ball softer ballady ones that um she wanted to do with jim because they were closer to what they'd done together on the first record so yeah we, we were right at the end of the of the process really okay she'd already done the all the sort of singles with Paul and we had a listen to those and, and she'd done all the other ones with Rick, which was sounded amazing. So there was no pressure. <laughs> we sort of kind of, oh, right, okay, we've got to do these and, and Rick Rubin and Andrew Sheps have done their thing and, uh, <laughs> you know, Paul and, and his engineers had, had done their thing. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was such a, a strange, weird scenario. It's cool, though. It's great. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a, an amazing experience. You were, so working with Jim for that long, you know, collaboration mm. and like teamwork is like the most powerful thing that you can do is to find like, you know, your collaborator that makes you like 10 times better than you are. Totally. Did you guys have a system where like you just started to know each other and like you knew what kind of things he would want and you're just like two steps ahead and it just makes everything flow? Do you have any tips for people that, you know, haven't been in a collaboration situation like that where two halves make, you know, far more than a whole? Um, yeah, well, well, the advice I would give is it, it doesn't come straight away. And I was, although I'd, you know, been working at a studio for quite a long time, 
I hadn't worked outside of that and I, I hadn't, uh, you know, had all of it on my shoulders that much. So I was still pretty green. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I was definitely being taken out of my comfort zone. And, you know, the first session I think we did was in Olympic studio in, and then the next one was in Townhouse studio. We kind of did the, the sort of tour of big studios. Right. Um, so that was pretty, I, I felt pretty pressured by that. And, and having an assistant I didn't know and not wanting to appear like a, a, an idiot in front of them. There's oh, all yeah. these new things you got to take on, right? Yeah. Um, so there was definitely a settling in period. But I think because Jim and I, I, I really resonated with his way of making records, which for the most part is the technical side is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly important, but is not as important as the song and the energy in the room at, at the point of creation, you know? So when you're doing takes, when you're doing overdubs, Jim was really, really specific with me that if somebody has an idea and they want to do something there and then they have to be able to do it there can't be any oh no sorry well can we do that in an hour because we're still set up for this other thing yeah. or you know oh i'm still editing this i'm still doing that the artist leads the process at every step i mean obviously there's sometimes you're like uh you know can you give us an hour just to sort everything out and then we'll you know go on with the rest of the overdubs and that kind of thing but the technology should never, ever get in the way of anyone's creativity. Yeah. It should just be there to augment and capture it. And that was very different to a lot of other producers that I'd worked with. I, I suppose it's kind of a, a more classic, not classical, classic way of looking at it. It's from, it's kind of from tape days, I guess, before you had so many options and before... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like the performance had to be right. You're capturing an energy. If ever the process got held up by a technical hitch of any description, he was immediately really quite annoyed about that. <laughs> on, on the artist's behalf, because they would obviously be a bit frustrated. Right. Just to impress upon me the the importance of, uh, you know, he doesn't care if the, the, there's a patch cord. He didn't actually care why anything was going wrong in a way. He would help, obviously, right. you know, if I asked him. But he was just like, just make it happen. Just sort it. Yeah. For this next thing. Do you know what I mean? We need to do a vocal, unpatch the drum mics, unpatch the... I don't care what it is you have to do. I will care when we need to go back and do the drums <laughs> later <laughs> on. And, and, and that thing isn't patched in. And he's like, well, why isn't that patched in? I was like, well, it's because of the thing. So yeah, it, it, it was quite a steep learning curve in terms of being prepared, keeping tracks aside, having DIs in the room that anyone could just plug into, yeah. having a mic always in the control room ready to do a vocal at any point, yep. uh, guide or otherwise. Yeah, and, and that's informed my record-making process ever since I worked with him, really. I mean, really, it was the kind of thing I thought prior as well, prior to that. But as we were saying previously, it's so easy to get caught up in the technology, in the process of, the technical process of making records. You can forget that what you're actually there to do is capture, you know, moments of brilliance or beauty or you know, ramshackle wonderfulness, or I don't know, that, that's what you're actually there for. You're not there because you know all the key commands on Pro Tools or because, you know, all, all those other things really, really, really help. I'm not saying they're not, <laughs> they're unimportant, oh, yeah, yeah. but you got to remember, you know, that the hierarchy. 
I guess, of what is important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Anybody that wants to be an engineer needs to pause here and like hit the back button, go back about three minutes and listen to all that again. Yeah. Because that is like, because I came up in a big studio as well and you see a lot of people in and out and, you know, there is like a normalcy to downtime that people accept and you can watch it kill a vibe mm. and kill a room. Totally. When you encounter those people, I don't think that's the norm, the way that, you know, you're talking about Jim working and, and how you guys worked. I can think of a handful of people that I've seen do that as well. But in mm. my experience, it's not the norm. And when you see that work, like when you're a kid and you're in a studio and you're getting the coffee and you watch somebody have an idea and they can immediately do it, they can just walk out to the live room and the producer says, hey, turn on the piano. I think he's going to the piano and somebody hits record mm. and it's mic'd and then that's it. Like that's the bridge for the next song. When you see that go down, you realize how important it is to have zero barriers. And so many people don't understand like why would i set up all this extra stuff because one of those extra things is going to get the job done you just Compl take the extra completely. hour plug the extra mics in have them sitting around like you said having di's and mics in the control room is it ever going to get used maybe but if it does could be the vocal take completely i mean, I mean there have been so many records where we thought we were doing the guide vocal you know the, the guide vocal with the big speakers blaring that oh, the yeah. singers stood right in front of holding an SM58, just kind of, you know, emoting. Yeah. When you're trained in a studio and the, the engineers above you are like, this has to be perfect. Don't get any noise on there. Is that, is that a buzz? Is that a, do you know what I mean? And it's necessary to be aware of, you know, the, the level of technical, uh, what's the word? Prowess? I don't know. Yeah. Te technical quality that we're all aiming for. Right. To go into that and to be just like, wait, what? We're, oh no, he's already singing. The 1176 is still set for the bass and it's smashing it. And it's like, oh my God, do I change it? What do I do? Do you know what I mean? It's halfway through the first verse. Right. He's listening to it. Do I change it or do I leave it? It's like those kind of things. Most of the time, by the way, I, I just leave it. Leave it. Um, oh, because, yeah. because anything that's going to, you know, bust the vibe or change anything halfway through a take I, I, when the take stops i'll probably tweak it again and just get yeah. the singer to no totally. sing a loud sing a loud bit uh, and do that but not while the you know the initial takes going um every time you move up a level in anything you realize that the things you were obsessing about on the previous level are, are <laughs> really not as important as you thought they were <laughs> Totally. Well, you, you know got to I mean? learn those to get to the next level. It's like you have to. Well, well yeah, of course. You, know, yeah. Uh, you have to make all those mistakes and over process some. You have to learn how everything works, break it all, and then you can yeah. figure out how you're actually supposed to use it. It's a long adventure, engineering and, and mixing, producing. Oh, man. You know, and, you and just to go back, people, if, you're sorry, if you don't mind, yeah. just to go back to, you know, if you're a kid in the studio and you see that happen, all the best sessions I was on, the most exciting, the most creative that that produced the best music that I felt I worked on they all had that that was happening all the time yeah. whether I was working with Flood I did a few sessions with him with Gil Norton with a lot of different people these were quite different producers in lots of ways Gil Norton is both incredibly particular in a technical sense but also will you know chew you out if something wasn't <laughs> if, if you're getting in the way of uh, a creative process as well they were always the best sessions and, and, and it was really noticeable 
Do you know yeah. what I mean? Everyone was vibing in the room all the time. And the other thing I noticed was people don't hold on to stuff as much. If th- everything's set up and everyone could go in there at a drop of a hat and re-record a take, I mean, the Flood was the most extreme version of that. We'd be, he came into the strong room, to, he was working on a Soul Wax record and they were supposed to be just mixing it in the SSL room, which had like a tiny kind of live room just off of it. So they were mixing this record uh, and, and the band were there and um, there were just a couple of tunes. It's like, they were just like, oh, it's just not, it's just not working. It's just not working. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. And Fred was like, right, okay, well, let's just, uh, Ian, uh, you've got an hour, just set everything up for the whole band and then we'll just do another take of it. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we're mixing. We're set up for mis- mixing. The desk is set up for mixing. Everything's, everything is patched in already. <laughs> Can I take this out? No, no, we have to have listen to it in the mix. Uh, okay. So it, it was, you know, in the space of an hour and a half, me and Rob Kerwin, the engineer, had basically set everything up. And the, the very fact that they were willing to ditch something that they'd been working on for probably a month at that point. Yeah. Because it wasn't right. It really wasn't right. And the ability to, you know, to completely wipe off that all that time and that money and all of the notes and comments and arguments they'd had about that recording of that piece of music they were like, okay, it's not right. We're going to do it again, but differently. The fact that everybody was not only down with that, but like actually excited about that was incredibly instructive. Like that, that is ideally what every session would be like for me. I don't hold on to anything. Yeah. You know, if, if we've sat there and tried to get a vocal, uh, sorry, a drum sound, we put different samples in and we recorded stuff over the top and we reprocessed and blah, blah, blah. And we spent three days on it, let's say, and it still isn't right. I'll just be like, okay, well, let's just do it again. And a lot of artists, you know, if they're not used to that, they're like, what? What do you mean? It's like, well, I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, it's not, we have literally done everything we can with this. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've tried all the tools at our disposal. And what you generally find is after, it's never a wasted process. It's never wasted time. No. Because by going through all the things that haven't worked, <laughs> you're, you're always getting closer to the thing that will work. And by going through all those steps of going, oh no, it's not doing that thing that I want it to do. Why isn't it doing that? Why isn't it? why aren't I feeling this way? You actually get closer to what you would actually particularly like it to do, which was the problem in the beginning. No one really had a strong idea really of what they wanted it to be. It's always the one that is like, well, that's, you know, we've had that song since we were 15 and it's just, it is what it is. And yeah. you know, we've never changed it. It always goes down really well live. It's like, okay, cool. We'll just do a live take of it. And you get towards the end of the album and it's like, mm, this one isn't sounding that great. <laughs> I mean, just don't hang on to stuff. Really yeah. don't. It, it's, it's just not worth it. Um, that would be a big piece of advice. It, it's hard to do if there's a label. <laughs> if, if, if the label, if the A&R man's in the room, right, um, and you've already been in the studio for three weeks and you've spent tens of, tens of thousands of dollars and blah, blah, blah. There are, you do have to pick your moments. Let me just say that. Don't, don't just throw everything out. <laughs> just uh, at the drop of a hat. But do not ever be scared to... Um, to suggest doing something again. I think some of the best vocals that that I've seen go down are working on a record and you know, you think the song's done and the and the singer comes in and they're like, I just want to sing it one more time. And you're like, we've sung this like five times. But it's mm. it, it it's 
they have like learned the song and they've lived in the song and they're going to like perform mm. it better. It's, you know, it's taking all those things that you tried, like you said, it's the drums aren't right. Will we'll, we know all the things that didn't work? It's, yeah, you have to be willing to go with your gut because your gut's going to be right. If your gut says this isn't right, it's not right. Completely. And, and as I've got older, I've, I've trusted my, my kind of subconscious a lot more than my conscious in, in yeah. these matters. I kind of feel confident at this stage that if I give my subconscious enough information with which to make a model and to process, it may happen a day later, it may happen two days later, but I'll be doing something, you know, completely unrelated and the, the answer that I was looking for will just pop into my head. It's, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. something's been working in the background. It's been doing all the processing for me. I haven't had to sit there and obsess about it. It's I've just put all the information in, all the data points, what I want, what what is happening, what isn't happening, what everybody feels about it. Right. And if I just rest on it for a bit, and don't, it's hard <laughs> because it, especially <laughs> if you're like going, especially if you've got a deadline and you're under lots of pressure, like giving yourself that time to process stuff, it is hard. Um, but you always come up with the, the right answer. And that, I think that's what happens with the, the singer in your example. They've done five takes. We, we've gone through the comp that, of, of you know, between those takes. We've done drop-ins. And I think that the, the initial problem was they didn't really know what the song needed at the beginning. And right. what was required was to go through that process and to go through all that and, and to get something that they were happy with so that A, they knew what they were doing. B, they, as we all know, singers' confidence is a very fragile thing. Um, th they know that they can do it. They know that they can hit all the notes. They know that they can emote the parts they need to emote. And then they just get this buzz, this feeling. It's like, I can, that thing that we cut together over the course of half a day, I, I can bash that out in one take. I can definitely do it. Yeah. And it's going to be better because they're not thinking about it then. They're, they're out of their own head. They're not thinking about the technicalities. They're not thinking about what, you know, head voice, chest voice, whatever it is. Yeah. They're not thinking about that. They just sing it. And that that, that is always the best vocal. It's usually like a one take, isn't it? And, and then there might be one little drop in if they miss coming back in on a verse or something. Yeah. You very rarely end up tuning that one or cutting that one or all that kind of stuff, because it, it's it's like the golden take, you know? Yeah. Well, I think in today's era of pop production and the way that the speed and pace of pop production has influenced even alternative and rock, like everybody's moving a lot quicker. A lot of people are writing songs the same day and doing the majority of the final master like that day and the next day. You have to remember that you're not living that song. You haven't been touring it. You haven't been singing it. Like that first time you sing the song mm -hmm. could be the best ever. It could also yeah. be completely the wrong emotion because you haven't yeah. lived that song for even a, a couple days and listen to it in the car and sing along. Like sometimes you just need that extra time with something. People are just in such a rush now. And I know like songwriters, you know, if you can get in with the artist and write with the artist and get that vocal, it's going to be a better chance of getting it on the record. But it's like, is that going to be the best vocal that you get in that like that two and a half hour session that you guys wrote most of the song in and you did one and a half takes? Yeah. You hope you can get that person back after they've lived that song and, and deliver something that they can really believe in. And a lot of people sing. 
the first take is epic. I mean, I've worked with a lot of singers where you're just like, okay, are we, we're really going to do another one? That's amazing. Um, Completely. But yeah. yeah. But people have to, you're right. People have to be open to throwing something out. Well, you know? the way the business is now, um, I mean, all those things I'm, I'm describing, the way Jim and I worked for those sort of eight to 10 years, I don't actually think, unfortunately, I don't think it's possible to work like that anymore. Yeah. Because it takes a certain amount of time. It, it takes a certain amount of trust on the behalf of the people who are stumping up the money. Yeah. You know, that you build into the budget um, creative time. They'll yeah. be like, well, there's 10 songs. You could do one a day, can't you? And then we'll come out of that and do some overdubs somewhere else cheaper, most probably. And then we'll do that. And to try and get somebody to say, I, yeah, we can do a song a day, but give us another two days. Because those are the bits, the bits where the pressure's kind of off and you can all sit in the studio for those last two days and you're not on the clock and you're not like, oh, we've got to get takes for this tune. And you can, you have time to listen together and plug some other things in and just try some things out. Probably 10 or 20% of which you'll actually use. But that kind of little exploration time is where all the really, really good stuff is. All, all those really, really cool sounds, those little details that you like in all your favourite records, they didn't come. They were either a mistake during the main take <laughs> <laughs> or they were as a result of throwing 10 things, 10 different keyboard parts at it afterwards and then picking through them or what have you. Um, I, I just don't think the the will and the budget and the, the way the, the the fast turnaround that is necessary in the in the business now, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's possible to do that unless 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 you're working outside of the the system a bit. Yeah, and that's kind of these labels and um, you know that all the different things I do, whether it's writing for library or production music, catalog music, whether it's uh, you know, making techno with my friend Ed and put, putting it out, whether it's doing a DJ mix, whatever, it is all, I, I don't need to rely on anybody else to do any of that stuff. Yeah. I, I, if I want to do it, I can do it. There's nobody that says, oh, well, you know, we haven't quite got budget for that and we haven't got the, that. That's the thing I got really, um, I got really uh, annoyed and, and discouraged with was that the way I liked working, I could see was going out of fashion, but not because it, it wasn't good, but because it wasn't economically viable right. in a lot of ways. Well, um, I have a question. I, I, and, go on. Oh, a question about that. Do you think that the the move away from the commercial expensive studios and into more of every producer having their own private space dialed into their workflow, hopefully allowing more creative time, do you think that's going to encourage people to go back to working like that? And kind of side related, what's happening to engineering when everybody has their own studio dialed? Is engineering becoming absorbed by all the other jobs, by the musicians laying tracks of their house, by the producers? Or does the engineer still have a home somewhere in this world? Um, I think that the first part of your question, I think a lot of these things, whether it's technology or changing different working methods or different economic pressures aren't in and of themselves bad or good. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. it, it's like it's the tools 
aren't in and of themselves bad or good. It's how you use them. And I think it's inarguable that the sound of records has changed markedly from when everybody, even if they weren't in a massive studio, went to a, a commercial studio. I, I'm not saying they're better or worse. I think it, it suits certain types of music, you know? Yeah. Eight-piece bands that want a choir on their record are not in favour at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> true, For true. all sorts of economic reasons to do with touring, to do with whatever, you know? Yeah. What is in vogue at the moment is the solo artist self-producing for the most part who works with different people on different songs if they need help with some songwriting or production ideas or what have you and then gets it all mixed at the end that is in vogue because that is both economically and uh, even artistically because it's the, the economics drive what the stuff that gets made right right so if you're a mumble rapper and you buy a beat and you just go in a studio for a day to lay down your vocal and then the guy there puts an L1 on it and, and you whack it up on SoundCloud, you know, this is your time, right? It is, yeah. You've got, you got all those articles on the internet. How do I get my music heard? Oh, you got to put out a track a week. Well, good luck with that if you're Coldplay and yeah. you want to make big records. Good luck with that if you, you know, you want to make a sprawling kind of epic record that takes in that is densely layered and, uh, you know, has multiple ideas and ways of looking at things in each song. Good yeah. luck with that. Yeah. That isn't going to happen in a week. <laughs> if that kind of music, and, and I really like a lot of it, I'm not shitting on it at all. I, I think some of the sounds they use and some of the production is great. And, you know, I, I really, really like it. But it's almost like if you're only putting out one song a week as a rapper you're kind of, you know, I feel like you should be writing five and putting oh, out yeah. one, not, write, not writing one and, and putting, and putting one out, out one. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's just, it's so easy and, and the, the template is kind of there and you just add your little spin on it. So I, I think definitely people not using larger studios, not going into spaces they're unfamiliar and uncomfortable in, mm. um, not working with different people on every project and having getting different influences you know all of those things your environment the people you're with even world events that happen during the session all of these things whether you like it or not inform what everybody does on that project true a lot of my favorite ones were when Jim and I worked abroad we, we did a the Katie Tunstall album we did, we recorded in Hansa Studios in Berlin, the kind of Brian Eno, David Bowie, yeah. Heroes studio. And immediately, you know, she had her band with her and there was Jim and I and there was her and we were all staying in the same place. You're just bound together immediately. I, the, the first time I met her was the first day we walked into the studio. I hadn't really met her before that. But you're just bound together because you're all fish out of water mm. you're all feeling similar things dislocation from your family and your home and all that kind of stuff but also really inspired by this new city you're in by the history of it by everything else that, that there is nothing that that brings a recording team closer together than going somewhere none of you have been before yeah and in, in a studio none of you have worked before and do you know what i mean it, yeah. it's, it's incredibly exciting yeah. and there are obvious pluses to working in the same studio 
all the time from a you know an engineering point of view or from a mixing point of view not having to find out what sounds good in this room or how the speakers are in that room or you know will I be able to do the things I normally do that I find easy in this room that's that's good for workflow and good for speed but it's rubbish for creativity and for allowing accidents to happen mm, yeah accidents that happen and and people hooking onto them and recognizing them someone plugging something into the wrong thing plugging it in backwards and some weird noise happens oh no I, you know i've knocked the feedback on the delay up to 100 and it's making this weird noise quick record it all that kind of stuff doesn't really happen when you're working a on your own in the same room every time and b if you're working pretty much 100% inside a computer very few happy accidents happen inside a computer because yeah. computers are kind of intention driven yeah. things the computers don't do things on their own do you know what i mean yeah. old tape delays do uh <laughs> like bits of equipment that are going wrong i mean how, how many vocals have you recorded where the, the mic amp was broken but everybody liked the fact it was really distorted and fucked and you could never get that sound another way again you oh know, yeah I've, I've done loads yeah and you um, can't punch in either because you'll never get that same distortion no. out of something else yeah no but, but but that forces everyone to make a decision then right yeah. if you if you've done that vocal and then the singer's like oh man i wish i could change that word to blah 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 well they have to they have to weigh that up don't they they how much do you like this vocal sound like seriously yeah not having the option to change something or it being quite hard to change something is not necessarily a bad thing because it's a filtration process for important and unimportant desires <laughs> to do with the tune. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you said and or but there, mate, it, it, it isn't going to sell you any fewer or more records. It's, it's just for you, really. No one else is going to care. If it, as long as it doesn't change the general feeling of the lyric and all that kind of stuff. Now... It would be to, to say to somebody, no, just leave it. You, you can't do that. I'm not letting you do that is, you know, is tantamount to kind of psychological violence. But if, <laughs> if it's out of everybody's hands, do you know what I mean? If it's out of everybody's hands, it's like, well, I mean, you could change that word. Sure. But it might not work because I might not be able to get the same sound on this or the same sound on that or what have you. I, I think making people make those decisions is important i forgot on the second part of your question because i've been answering the first part so long or did i answer both <laughs> well i know uh, the second part was just where does the engineer live in this in this world but uh the the answer to the first part was was you know far exceeded the uh the second <laughs> half of the question so um but i well, do I, I i think that's a sorry go on mate oh i would uh, go ahead if you if you have a thought on where the engineer stands go for it yeah i am um, i am not uh, optimistic, put it that way. Yeah. I think, and I don't like this at all, really, but it seems to me that engineering is, in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, right? I, I don't mean in terms of creative engineering, in terms of being a positive presence in the room, all that kind of stuff. Creative, socially aware, positive, inspiring people are always going to be needed in and around record making. Yeah. Whether they will be engineering that record is debatable in my um in my view. Because I think it's 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 like, I don't know, it's like kind of mid-level accountancy, right? We all know in about 20 years, 
25, maybe 30, all those white collar jobs that can be quite easily done by a computer, given enough data, given enough training, an AI. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We've made the rod for our own back, really, because now that most records are made on computers, the end game is that computers won't need us to run them anymore. So that there'll be a, if you're a songwriter, so morning, Harold, or whatever you call your computer, your computer <laughs> will be your engineer. Can you set me up my usual vocal track, please? Yeah, can you put a, put a uh, one second reverb on that just for me to listen to? Okay, Dave, would you like a little bit of slapback with that as well? Yeah, that'd be nice. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lovely. Okay, well, um, yeah, let's just go and I'll do five takes. Shall I? Okay, Dave, I'll, I'll comp them together for you automatically due to your specifications afterwards. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> these are, with computers, these are merely numbers-based processes. Right. Now, if you said to your computer, surprise me with a sound, you could definitely say to your, you can already say to your computer with ozone and stuff, oh, here's a reference. I want my mix when it's mastered to sound like that. So you feed it a reference, it gets all the data points, you put your mix in and it tweaks all the, you know, the, the presets and everything to match the master that you've given it. Yeah. Right. So, so if in the future, if you say, I think, uh, a computer, I think uh, uh, Ringo's drum sound on Let It Be uh, would be good for this tune. Can you dial that up, please? Yeah, no problem, Dave. It can do that. However, if you say to a computer, show me a sound I've never heard before. Give me a random sound. Give me a, what happens if. I'm sorry, Dave, I don't have a precedent for that. And there will be randomizers built in. Right. But you're not going to be able to have an emotional, a funny a annoying, all of these things, the feedback that you get from humans that you then feed into whatever you're doing. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody's being annoying in the studio, right, if a drummer's being particularly annoying or a bass player or any, I will make engineering moves with a little bit of irritation in my, they won't hear it in my voice, <laughs> but if I'm a little bit jarred off, with like, okay, we'll drop in on that again. We'll do that. That that is that is having an effect on the choices I'm making. Yeah, you know that is having an effect on uh, which parts I choose in a comp. That is having all sorts of effects that are branching out just from one human interaction. Or if I haven't eaten lunch yet, you know, uh, and we're six vocal takes in, and I haven't eaten lunch yet. And the, vocal, the the singer's going, what, what do you think? What do you think of that? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, fine. yeah, great. Let's just do another one. Or, or not. Or stop for lunch. Are you hungry? I'm hungry. Uh, yeah, all, all these things. <laughs> yeah. All these things have an effect. And, and I think we discount those. It's just not where we're, we're at as a society. We're all for efficiency and cutting the cost and getting things out there and getting the, you know, most okay results in the shortest space of time yeah, with, the, with for the least money. And that does not optimise for surprising, offensive, um, sensibility kind of rocking, mind-opening art, in my opinion. I'm, there, is, there is lots of stuff that I'm sure proves me wrong, but that's just my kind of feeling about it. that. That's my experience of it. I, I know what I'm like when... I get caught up in technical details. Yeah. You know, I'm not that creative. I think I'm being creative, 
but I'm actually just kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, as the saying goes. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, you know, when I, when I'm being truly creative, when I'm in a flow state, I, I can mix. I can mix an album in two days. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Do, do, do you have that? Like when I'm on, all the juices are flowing. I can feel it. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just like, and I don't think about what I'm doing. I'm not questioning what I'm doing. I'm just in that flow state. I'm just like, right, I'm doing this. Move on to the next one. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Yeah, I'm going to put that mad sound on it. Great. Move on to the next one. That is the, for me, that the highest kind of point I can reach as a creative individual. Do you know what I mean? When I'm not yeah. thinking about the technical processes of what I'm doing, the gap between having an idea and realizing it and recording it in the real world is it's incredibly short that that's when i in my opinion do all my best stuff you know yeah. and, and I, th I think that's when most people do their best stuff oh it's true it's like uh, it's like an athlete training you know you don't practice football or or baseball or, or whatever for hundreds of hours so that you can think about how you're going to kick the ball or how you're going to swing the bat it's just it's, when it's, it's time it happens yeah. and a couple hours later you're done doing it and you did it good or you did it bad. You just like, you hit that state, play the game. It's like the greats of, of any sport. Yeah. It just looks like totally. it's second nature to them. And when you hit that flow state as a creative, whether you're playing or you're mixing or whatever it is, like anybody that trains their mind enough can reach that state of whatever it is. C completely. Well, it's like driving, man. Right? Yeah, exactly. You yeah. know, we, we, we've, all, we've all had the, the you know, the 2 a.m., drive home from the studio where you get home and you kind of, you walk in and you sit down and you go, huh, I just realized I've been thinking about absolutely everything except my route home. I, I don't even remember going through the tunnel I usually go through or doing it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, yeah. That, that's because the process of driving, the, the physicality of it, it is so embedded into your subconscious. It's so part of your physical being that you don't, your front, your conscious brain doesn't have to think about it at all. And that, that kind of goes back to what I was saying about, I trust my subconscious a lot more now. You yeah. know, if you do something enough, a physical thing, like practicing an instrument, right? You don't practice all the scales so that you can play all the scales. You practice all the scales so that when you need four notes for a thing, they're right there. Yeah. And, and they come out of your brain and then they just happen out of your fingers. And you can improvise and you can, you know, it can be the first time you've ever played a song, but you know it's the best time you've ever played it and ever will play it probably because your mind was just completely off and you just react to, it's, it's very in the present, right? You know, there is no past, there is no future. You're just living bar to bar. What's happening now? Every time seems to slow down a bit. Kind of, oh yeah, I've got, I've got loads of time to think about. Oh right, okay, maybe I'll try this little thing now, <laughs> and and everything just seems to be. Everything seems harmonious, yeah, in the world in a weird way. Like all the energy is correct, everything is happening exactly as it should be, exactly as it was intended, and you are not almost like not an active part in it. It's it's kind of like me like meditation or you know, yeah, yeah. It's, a different state of consciousness. Yeah, indeed, completely. It's, uh, yeah, dude, I, I'm loving this. I could keep going, but I should get to my final question Do so it. we can let that one rant out. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> am I going on too long? No, Tell no, me, no, this is, this is, I'm, I, I, like I said, I go all day. I love it. 
Um, All right, cool. So I end every show with the the same question. What is your current big goal and what's the next smallest thing you're going to do to go towards that goal? The biggest goal I have at the moment is to build these record labels up so that it's a shared goal with Ed so that when we, you know, they will continue after we don't continue. We, we want to build something that is representative of our taste and the way we think about music and art and books and all that kind of stuff that carries on way after we we die. That, that's the big goal. Yeah. The next smallest thing I have to do is to, hold on, let me just, I, I've got all my smallest things are in this big black book. I've realised the thing about having lots of things going on, right? Yeah. Is it's fucking hard to keep all those things, <laughs> all those plates spinning at once in your, uh, in your brain. That's right. And hence, I've got my second brain, which is this book. And you'll see there's like, and I'm just showing it to Travis now, there's loads of like scrawled writing in it. Some of it's crossed out, some of it isn't. Crossing out means it's been done. There are, quite, there are stupid little pictures in it. Uh, it, it's, it really is like my brain. Like if, if I think of a phrase I like or something I see, I, I write it down. Yeah, so the next smallest thing is always in this book. And I'm going to turn to today. I'm going to ignore all the small things that I haven't done that I'm supposed to do. Uh, the next thing is I have to send two of our artists, the, the, the next two that are coming up, the one on Punch Up is called Akaxa, A-Q-A-X-A. And he's a really interesting artist. He's, um, he, he built an AI to go through all his voice messages in his phone and then throw them back to him as ideas for songs. That's epic. And then he kind of, he's kind of like an electronic composer, I suppose. A bit like, if you imagine a kind of uh, distorted Berlin-based Brian Eno. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, or, or something. It's, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a pleasant listen in, in a kind of, you know, birds tweeting orchestral loveliness kind of way. But it is incredibly interesting. Listen, anyway, I've got to send his masters to uh, Abbey Road to be mastered. And there's a, another artist on um, At Swim Music who's going to be coming up who's called Le Grand Salon. He's French Canadian. He's also a neoclassical guy. He's a string player. Cool. And that is kind of the less electronic, but there, there, there are similarities between those two. So we're, we're pretty non genre specific. That's awesome. I <laughs> at love the it. labels. Yeah, because I, I think. You know, it's we live in a, uh, a musical culture that is so categorized in terms of Spotify, in terms of everything that yeah. we, Ed and I, we, we like the spaces in between. We don't, we're not really that interested in something that's definitely whatever it appears to be. Yeah. You know, I think the most interesting things are in the spaces in between. That's cool. Can I ask you uh, when and how long ago you started your little book of, of ideas? When did the idea of storing that stuff come to you? Oh boy, uh, maybe I've got the date. <laughs> I told you, it's my brain. Uh, let's have a look here. Third of August last year. Okay, all right. I read a book. It's it's a dry dry read. Uh, getting things done. Mm. I can never. I can't remember the author. Uh, David Allen. Um, right. But he basically has the concept of like you have so many things going on in your mind that unless you put them in a stored, trusted source, like your book, like you know everything you need mm. to do is in your book, 
So when you go to do one of those things, your brain is not worried about the other things in that book because Forgetting the other stuff. it's comforted yeah. knowing that in the morning you're going to look at that and you're going to do the things you need to do and it doesn't have to remind you. Otherwise, it'll remind you to get milk on your way home and whatever it is, it yeah. will, it'll make sure that those things keep popping up to you. So I think it's so important for people to, when they have a lot going on, to like catalog it. It's like made me be able to, um, made me be able to actually like hit a, a point of like actually working where I can like just mix and not be interrupted for two and a half hours. And then all of a sudden I'm done with a song and you're like, that's because yeah. I was uninterrupted by myself and yet alone oh, other totally. people, you know? So uh, I was just curious if, uh, if you'd read that book or, yeah, or how I, long you'd been I, doing, I, doing your, your cataloging there. Uh, yeah, well, I, I haven't read that book specifically, but I, I have, I, it, it was born out of hearing that concept essentially yeah. uh, where when I started doing lots of different things, podcasts and whatever, I found that I had to start doing it. And and also I use it while I'm, um, I use it when I'm mixing as well, actually. The, ah. the, the same kind of process whereby I'll, I, I get my kind of, uh, my vibe going. I, I get something so it's, it, I, I call it, so it's listenable in my car. You know, it's not going to sound like too crazy. Right. Uh, I, I get it. So it's vibing and I like it. And then I go and listen to it in my car um, and I make notes and then I come back and I don't do anything for an hour. And then I come back and I only do the notes that I've written down. I don't do I don't listen to it like, oh, maybe that could be better. Oh, maybe that could be better. Is that as good as the reverb on that other mix that I think is really cool? Yeah. Like I don't allow that. To have because I mean that is the process that I went through with with Jim when I was mixing for him. I would do a balance. He would take it out to his car. He would come back with you know maximum five, unless it was completely like totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> then he'd be like, "Mate, I think we need to start this one again." Yeah, but um, he'd come back with you know three to five notes. We'd do those. He'd take another mix, take it out to his car. He'd come back with another three to five notes, and usually by two to three rounds of that, you're in a place where you're definitely ready to send it to the band or the label or or someone else do you know what yeah, i mean yeah which is all that's all your job is you don't you are not the arbiter of whether something's good or not <laughs> you just have to make it so that when they listen to it they're not like bloody hell that kicks a bit loud or do you know what i mean yeah it's just tidying up i find that really useful because otherwise i'll just sit in front of a screen going maybe this could be better maybe this could be better maybe they'd like it more like this oh yeah unless yeah. i other myself do you know what i mean and, and leave notes for myself for, in the morning one of the things that i took away from a project with a, a producer francois titas um i don't know if you if you know francois but um it's amazingly no, talented know. but uh we were doing a record and he was insistent on listening to what we thought would be the final mix from top to bottom everybody took their notes the three of us compared our notes, compiled them, did the notes, then went back to the top and listened down to the entire song. It's like when people, you get stuck on like doing a bunch of things in the chorus, you lose perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's just that act yeah. of what the entire song feels like. And then you, you make the changes just like you do and like Jim was doing. I think it is one of the most efficient ways to get a mix done because you don't get lost in your nonsense. And you're looking and you're forcing yourself to see the whole picture. And, and, and also because you're sharing your notes, there's accountability, right? Yeah. You, you don't, you're not going to write anything down or you might write it down, but you're not going to say anything. 
that you think, oh my God, that's so tiny. No, everyone's going to be like, all right, mate, well, we could spend an hour doing that or what's, what's the point? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That There's accountability there. I think that's, that's very important. Yeah. And, and I think there's, um, there are so many good things about the technology we use now, but there were also lots of incredibly good things about when we were using linear media, you know, we were using tape, mm. we were using when even a five second break when you had to rewind the tape back to the beginning to start the mix from the top again. Now I, I'm, I'm not even aware I'm doing it, but I, my wife has sort of walked in while I'm working. She's like, you're just kind of, you play like four bars of this and tweak something, then another seven bars of that and tweak something. And then you go to the end and do the fade and you go back to the beginning and do the thing. And then you go, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's music is not experienced like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a linear form and, and every thing that happens has to make sense in the context of the thing before it and the thing that's going to come after it. It's stuck in linear time. Yep. You know, and to not listen to it like that is, uh, aside from being insanity inducing, is, uh, isn't that great creatively, I don't think. Well, this has been great. I, I really, I loved, I loved hanging out. We'll have to do this again. I had a couple Likewise, other questions, man. so I'll save them for like episode 100. We'll, we'll do it again. Um, but yeah, yeah. If you've got spare four hours, you can ask me another two questions, maybe. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we could just record, we could record three episodes right now. I'll just I'll have uh, an Ian Dowling exactly. episode every every ten. Well, if you if you're worth your salt, then you'd have a mic running all the time, so that if <laughs> I ever said anything worth broadcasting, you've got it. That's right. <laughs> uh, but um, your your podcast is called Conversation Killer. People should listen to that. I'll put a yeah. link to it. Your first episode was about uh, mentors and mentorship, and I know that that's something that you're mm -hmm. you're getting into, and I, I really enjoyed yeah. that conversation. I think people should listen to that. Oh, thank you. Is there anything that you want to share? You want to, websites or band camps or Instagrams for the labels? Um, no, I mean, I'm not about to sit here and read out a load of web addresses. If, if you search <laughs> in Google for Ian Dowling, some answers will come up. If you search for At Swim Music, some answers will come up. If you search for Punch Up Records, some answers, go, go and find it yourself. You know? All right. And there will be Google a link. Google is an amazing thing. There will be a link to Google in the show notes. And uh, you guys <laughs> yeah, find what Google you find. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's my answer for everything now. Google it. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know it's probably getting close to dinner time for you. So um, this is this is great. Let's definitely do this again. No problem. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for episode 20. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Ian for coming on the show. Don't forget to check out his releases that are out now. Also, please don't forget to join in the conversation over at completeproducer.net. And as always, I appreciate all the shares, the comments, the reviews, the likes, and we'll see you next week.